You are listening to the Parallel State. It's Friday, the twentieth of November, twenty twenty, and this is State of the Nation. And uh, we have two guests today: Nina Edge, who's uh, based in Liverpool, and Lisa Lovebucket, who's up in uh, Tyneside. And um, that's a bad. This, that's it, a bad start. Say again. Teesside. Teesside. Sorry, Lisa Lovebucket, <laughs> who's based in Teesside, not Tyneside. Okay, <laughs> thank you. So uh, State of the Nation is a conversation um, where we talk about our feelings and um, what the week has been like for us. And we generally start with some words from Professor John Dovey. Uh, John, what have you got for us today? Thanks. <laughs> thank you, Simon. And, and good to meet you, Lisa and Nina. It's really nice uh, that you gave, gave up some of your Friday to join us for, the, for a chat about where we are right now. Um, well, um, I've got something that I wrote in September, actually, that I want to share with you. Um, it's a bit doomsy, and I just want to reassure you that there is nobody in my family who's actually ill. It's a dystopian future fiction. Um, in September, there was a whole lot of chat about testing and the way that testing was being introduced. And I suddenly realized that, of course, there was going to be this massive differential um, in, in the way that testing was introduced. And if you could afford really great, quick testing, like if you were a Premier League footballer, for instance, then basically you could carry on doing things in sort of fairly normal ways. And then I discovered shortly after that, that actually Eton College had already invested in its own testing regime at 60 quid a pop so that their little boys and girls could all carry on doing what they do normally. Uh, and I know that's changed a bit since then, but it did inspire this poem about the way that capitalism and healthcare interact. Um, it's called Rare Flesh, and it's set um, in the near future. I don't know why she did it, went out dancing in the midnight air. She always needed music and dancing, something special to wear. But now she lies next door struggling to breathe. Her fever's through the roof and none of us can leave. So that's how it has to be now. We can only live on the screens. The servers support everything from high streets to village greens. The servers are our workplace, our playground, the site of love and life. If you can even use that word for this permanent half light. We dream in telepresence. The screen has stolen our souls. The bodies we took for granted redundantly absolved of what made life worth living, the social without distance, the flow of human contact, the pulse of our existence. I remember back to when this time round started, when we thought we'd all been freed. 3D was so exciting after so long with that need. Two meters or maybe one, they said, no one was ever quite sure, but whilst we tried our best, we were, we all really wanted more. Turns out that chatting and dancing and getting pissed, embracing and kissing is what we all missed. So now the flesh has become an exquisite treat, a banquet in a posh hotel in a closed off Mayfair street. Only VIP access, because of course there's always a way. Capitalism's genius as long as you can pay. It's all about the testing, see, and the money buys the best. An instant result buys freedom and sets you apart from the rest. 
as long as you know you're all always clean, you can live like you did before, coming and going as you please behind your red rope door. So now these new elites, they can buy contact and it's not thought a crime, parading their touchy-feely privilege on the screens that fill our time. At their endless dinner parties, they air kiss and they hug, and we love and hate the spectacle of their uninfectable smug. Touch has become impossible, a rare and a precious thing, now flaunted by these bastards as just another kind of bling. Here in our cubicles, living through the screen, these new glitterati are acting out about our dreams, like they're buying the money, like they're buying the honey of all the hives imagined by the worker bees in our lockdown hives. We'll be the herd with immunity bought by death, regretting we couldn't pay for testing as we take our dying breath. So I'll go and fetch my junkyard PPE, the mask I made from a water bottle and a bin bag to protect me from the beautiful girl in the next room as she hovers between life and the lingering doom, wondering when this chapter will be finished and how we can make a future where life is undiminished. A, a, bit of a, a bit of a gloomy one. I mean, it might be worth picking up with Nina because, of course, testing is not an elite practice in Liverpool. Tell us what it's been like having mass testing in Liverpool. That is a strangely controversial question to be um, speaking openly about because um, one of the features of the testing that's become available is that it has come with um, a judgmental uh, framework, it has come with a divisive framework, um, how they feel in themselves about what's happened in Liverpool. So trying not to get into any more trouble than I'm already in, um, I've decided to participate in the podcast, but to merely talk about what I've seen or heard, right? So I'm reflecting like an artist would, a view of the world. So I've been out and about a lot walking. Um, I was on the River Mersey today and I saw a completely empty testing site. I was on a patch of wild land called Allerton Hall last Saturday and I passed a completely empty testing station. I was on the mystery in Wavertree last Friday and I saw a very small number of people coming out of a testing station. And what I saw was a big queuing system to go in. It did remind me of a cattle market. That's possibly a bit of a... I don't want to overstate that, but it felt like if you got in that queue, you might not easily be able to turn around and walk out it, the way it was threaded between barriers. And I also saw some people that were quite confused and they were being directed by workers in high-vis jackets how to get back to their vehicle. Because what, what I didn't realise at the time was something I'd seen from standing on a mound in this park and seeing a handful of people come out one at a time from the back of the tennis club where the testing's happening, looking a bit confused, disorientated. They were the people that had queued up at the front of the building and they send them out of the back. So that might mean that for reasons of um, 
infection control, you go in one way and you come out the other. That would be a reasonable thing. So there's that, there's those observations. I've, there are many, um, many, many places I've passed now that have um, high-vis clad people on the outside of the building. They've all got their masks on. They don't need their masks on their outside, but they've all got their masks on. Their stance is a little tense and there's hardly anyone there. There's, there's hardly anyone there. I've seen probably six places that are empty now. There, there may be an overcapacity in the system. There may have been an assumption that more people would want to go and take a test than have done. Um, and people have, that have been and had tests and have spoken to me have said, oh, it's really good in Liverpool Lake, isn't it brilliant? The Caribbean people can go to the Caribbean centre for their test and the Muslims can go to the mosque for their test. And, you know, the sporty people can go to um, the sports centre for their test. But there, there's so many. I mean, they're literally very close together. And, and, and I noticed that. People have people have during the lockdown. People have made WhatsApp groups and, and like they might for, for going for a walk. You know, so people might say we'll be take we'll be going for a walk in the park, and so people are going to have a long distance convo in the park. So there's lots of little little groups, and I've noticed on some of these groups, people have have um, said, "Oh, I've been for my test," and then um, unlike I've been for my walk, there seemed to be uh, an absence of follow up conversation, or that might be just when I've picked up my phone and looked at it or not looked at it. There's a disturbing number of emails from different cultural organisations in the city. I won't name names, but I've had three now. And in amongst their programme notes that they email out when you're on their email, on their mailing list, it says, click here to see a list of the addresses of the testing stations, or have you been for your test yet? And that made me feel like I didn't give my email address to this organization for any public health purpose. I gave my email to these people so I could find out who's playing in a given venue. And it felt um, uncomfortable. I do understand why people feel the need to have tests and be tested and learn more about the health situation that we're in. I'm just saying that's a new development there was never any emails from the council's cultural office or from the cultural organization saying, don't forget to stay at home. Or, or actually they might have said they might have said stay home, protect the NHS on, on the council ones, but I don't I don't remember feeling um, awkward about it. Maybe they did it and I didn't feel awkward about it. Because at the same time as there's capacity for a free test if you're symptom free in Liverpool. I'm not sure if there's capacity if you have got symptoms. So all of these places that I've seen, it says symptom free. Um, so you go there to be part of this big experimental community test. So there's excess capacity or people are not up for it or they've already been done at the very beginning and, and they're just running it, they're running it to its end because they've got the money to pay the high-vis people to be there. And then there's the, the intervention I, of the cultural organisations that surprised me. And maybe sporting groups are doing it as well. Maybe if you're part of a football club, you've been getting it from 
I don't know because I'm not on those. So the communication is different and it's quite forceful. And it's taken as read that you as a member of the public feel this to be a good and beneficial thing. And I place that next to what I'm hearing from learned health professions at the top of their at the top of their career. So in particular, Dr. Angela Rattle, who lives in Bristol, was speaking on the radio at, on the five o'clock news last night. And she was asked if she thought that what was going on in Liverpool was a good spend of resources and a good way to learn about the situation. And she replied to that question, I am saying that it is not a good use of resources and that it is, we do not learn enough from this situation. And she's the second senior health worker that I've heard talk in this way. The other lady was called Alison, spelt with a Y, and she was speaking on Twitter and she was the head of community health. And she was saying, you don't run a community study like this. You don't randomly test the whole population one time. You've never tested them before. You don't necessarily have the capacity to test them again. Um, the, the council put out a test result meme. I've seen it once. I don't know if they do it every day. And the, the numbers tested is phenomenal. It's an amazing achievement. You have to admire it. But there's only 455 people with a positive test, which is way less than the percentage that we were led to believe on the 6th of October, just before Liverpool was put into tier three. So either we have to be curious about the fact that maybe the test is not accurate and isn't giving a result of what the health in the community is and whether or not people are positive or not. There's a lot of local talk about, we don't know if it, some people think it's, not very accurate. Some people think it is very accurate. We don't really know. We're just talking when we're out in the park. And the Dr. Angela Rattle made a really amazing image talking on the radio yesterday on the BBC. She said that the government did set out to perform the biggest community testing screening uh, event that they have ever done and they didn't at any point turn around to the screening experts they pay for and ask them for input or advice or feedback or even to set up the testing. So she, her analogy was the image that she created and I'll end here because I'm taking up a lot of words. She said it would be as if the government wanted to build a tunnel under the channel and they didn't refer to any civil engineers and what you would end up with is a tunnel that didn't meet in the middle. That's a fantastic analogy Nina. So so, so um, very very interesting thanks for that it really gives a sense of, of kind of some of what's going on and the way that people feel about it and hinting at I think some other very interesting things. What's your reaction uh, to that Lisa? Just before um, we move on to Lisa, I need to just say that I am taking a certain amount of risk by uh, voicing this because there, there's a lot of closing down of any, um, I'm, not, I'm not being critical, I'm saying, shall we have a look at this? Shall we be curious about that? But the, the level of loyalty that is being demanded of people to the central narrative is something I have never, experience people are afraid to talk about this with each other 
in case somebody says, oh, are you a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist? Or So I just wanted to drop that in. I feel that I've spoken much more uh, freely and truthfully than I perhaps expected to, because as a human, I feel the need to have that curiosity, but I am aware that it will be considered controversial or offensive by other people who have strongly been messaged through the media that by taking the test, they're doing their civic duty. Yeah, well, I think whenever one feels that sense of being silenced, Nina, you can be sure that there's a very powerful ideology at work. That's one of the ways in which we know those ideological moments where we're being constrained is where we feel as though there's things that we can't say. And probably this is a good place to try to say something like that here in the parallel state world. Um, yeah, um, so thanks for that. And, and I hear you. Um, um, yeah, Lisa, what's your, what's your reaction to, to, to Nina's account there? Yeah, um, um... I've had my own experience of testing centres. Um, I'm, I live slightly over the border from Teesside and I had to have a test and my lad had to have a test. And um, it sounds like the posturing was very different um, because it's kind of really out in the sticks, but they were just, they were just absolutely deserted. And both times we got tests within an hour. So there's certainly a serious concern about capacity at testing centres. Um, as far as the Liverpool experiment is concerned, um, again, from a local perspective, I found it really interesting that they were going to conduct the same um, experiment in Redcar, uh, which is a local seaside town, and for whatever reason decided not to. And I kind of feel that if they had run them in tandem, um, it might have given them a lot more interesting results because you could compare how people in a small town like Redcar feel about this you know this mass testing compared to the people in a big city like Liverpool um, but again I just think um, when you're trying to run a scheme that requires people to stay at home for two weeks it's again it's 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 the socio-economics of this virus again isn't it it's like who can afford to stay home at, for two weeks if you're not fully compensating those people for their for their financial loss at the same time, making sure that their employers are going to keep their jobs open for them at the end of those two weeks, let alone all the people that, you know, maybe don't work that quite, quite that officially. You, you discount all of those people from, from the tests. And so how do you get a, a good overall demographic if you make a, a scheme where the, the more well-off in the more secure jobs can attend for testing and those in less secure jobs can't. Um, so I think, and also sending the army into Liverpool is never going to be the greatest idea to unite people, is it? Um, and again, it just seems like, you know, uh, denial of responsibility on, on like imposing, like just coming up with, the, they just keep coming up with these ridiculous ideas, don't they? And just going, oh, let's do that. And leaving the people, the local people on the ground to pick up the pieces, to be in those divided communities that all think they're doing the right thing, but in a different way. And there's just so much, there's, there's, there's so much incompetence and there's so much information and disinformation. It's like the problem with this virus is whatever you think, you're going to find huge amount of evidence out there to back you up. It's like what the thinker thinks the prover proves. It's like, and people are just kind of looking at one side of it and truth i don't think we really know at all um so 
that's that's kind of how I'm feeling about it right now. No, I was just going to say there's a whole thing here, isn't there, about the north of England mm. and uh, blue wool, red wool, and you know the this whole thing. You you're now in is it blue wool? Can you tell us about blue wool territory? What does it look like? Um, well, Teesside, which um, most of which was put into lockdown, uh, you know, in the very, very first to, to go into like the highest tier. Um, yeah, it's as you would expect. I mean, we, we compete really with Liverpool for having the worst child poverty um, uh, tables in the country, um, the highest number of mental illnesses amongst children in the country. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's been really neglected, really overlooked, where other uh, former industrial places have had opportunity to reinvent themselves. Um, Teesside hasn't, you know, I think it's on the cusp of doing that. And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of people committed to making sure that happens, but it's not the case at the moment. And people it's and, and also, you know, it I mean it's it's that bad that that five of our MPs are now Tories, you know, it, people in absolute poverty, absolute desperation, things getting worse and worse, seeing no way out of it, thinking Brexit was somehow gonna save everything, you know. I mean they've got they've got that yet to come, the sad realization that it's probably just gonna make their lives worse. Um uh, so yeah, it's and, and or you know and also this whole thing about like I as I say I live just across the border so I'm actually in Sunak's constituency which had far higher levels of infection recorded than on Teesside but never went into like full lockdown until the country did and uh, and also you know I believe Boris Johnson's constituency had higher levels and didn't go into lockdown and so obviously there's a lot of cynicism about the reasons why these decisions are being taken and whether it's actually to do with statistics or it's more to do with politics um and yeah and you know um obviously a lot of people are living back to back they haven't got flash houses they haven't got big gardens and they're they're in a situation where they're being they're being blamed for their socio-economic, they've got to go to work, you know, and that's the other thing up in the north. So many of the jobs are these jobs where you can't stay at home. You've got to go to work to do them. You've got to get public transport to get to your jobs to do them. And then this massive insult of, you know, work up here when we, when we were in lockdowns, um, getting 67%. So like, uh, and then when the whole nation's on lockdown, suddenly the furlough schemes back up to 80%, almost like the north. And its workers aren't worth as much as the rest of the country. You know about these. The, I mean, there's plans for the uh, the ancient jurisdiction of Northumbria to. Um, uh, it's making a bid for independence. Yes. Do we? Uh, I, I'm very tempted to jump on that one because I'm I'm uh, really keen on the disunited kingdom project, but perhaps we might steer away from that. Um, I'm going to ask you, Nina, about sort of coming back to this idea of the truth and activism. And you're just saying something which resonates with me, which is artists are observers. They they look and then and they might have an opinion, but they don't necessarily reflect their opinion. They reflect the thing in front of them. And actually what we're finding is that um, 
when we do reflect the things that are right in front of us, they're sort of uncomfortable. But but people, uh, because as John has said, we're in this sort of confined space. It's almost like the other truths kind of smother over things. So, you know, Barnard Castle, yeah, eyesight test, don't worry about it. Um, child poverty and T-side, yeah, don't worry about that for the moment. Let's, let's get through this. So we're being encouraged to just get through this. But what Lisa, you said, is that fundamentally the people in Big Gov might be completely incompetent. Please comment. Yeah, the, the government are only incompetent if governance is their business. If they're trying to achieve something else, then they're actually not incompetent. They're, they're succeeding in... I mean, if the, the main outcome that is really visible and clear from the Liverpool testing is a lot of money's gone to the company that make the, the test. It may, may not be well spent. The, the, uh, Dr. Angela Rattle said that, that she had concerns for Liverpool because over Christmas, if we're un unlocked or in the future, people may feel that they are not a risk to others or at risk because they've had a negative test that may or may not be accurate. So there are concerns in, among health professionals that the tests actually make people overconfident that, that they're... That they're safe to, to, to move around. It's safe for them to move around freely. And that may not be the case. So if, if the government was seeking to create confusion and um, a loss of morale and to um, take public funds and place them in the hands of uh, private companies, well, no, they're, they're not incompetent. If their competency on the issue of public health and caring for the nation's citizens, which whose money they are spending, then they are grossly incompetent. It depends which way you view their aims. Their, the, the kind of recovery that Teesside wants and needs would just as, just as likely be based around tourism as Liverpool's is, and with the freeze on uh, freedom of movement for all people, the entire um, basket of eggs that Liverpool put all of its investment into has fallen to the floor. It's a scramble. It's got the shell in it. It's not going to be an omelet. It, 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 the the um, degree to which the any investigation of, of public health could have been run differently. Why would you not be interested in what was taking place in London as a global city or Birmingham? Why would you not be interested in, why would you not be very, very interested in Barrow and Finesse, which has had consistently high infection rates? Why would you not be interested in meat processing plants, such as the ones in North Wales that have also had high infection rates? This doesn't demonstrate an interest in a health issue it demonstrates something else entirely. Sorry, I've only just thought about that, about the meat, pa uh, meat packing and um, barrow. But it, it's, it's completely weird behaviour if it is a public health investigation. If it's something else, if it's the practice of how you get the army into a civilian space and have them trusted, well, then that's a good experiment for that. The people in Liverpool, like, the people in Toxif, take them their dinner. 
yeah they, that's how lovely <laughs> that's how lovely the people around the caribbean center are yeah they take them flasks of tea and, and they take them food the, the everyone who's a worker is welcome in the city and everyone is as as lisa said all trying to do their best but it, in terms of being a witness, the extreme difference between what we're being told by a particular, particularly BBC, but many media channels, what we're being told and what we're seeing is, are now so far at odds that it's quite difficult to know what to do with it. And I, I think what I spot as a sort of light in the tunnel is lots of people are just leaving their phone at home and going for walks going for walks they're going for a walk in the park at nine o'clock at night it's full it's full it's one of the safest places i've been recently walking around i've, I've got an ambition to see the owl in sefton park i can hear it but i can never see it i go in there after work most nights or go to the river for a walk there's people walking and running and cycling there's dogs with LED lights on and there's people out on their bikes, there's kids flying kites. You walk on Otterspool Prom by the river, it's like being in a 1930s illustration. People with sandwiches, people with kites, people with footballs, people with frisbees, hundreds and hundreds of people. It looks like a painting, it looks like a Victorian painting of how people used to behave when they went out to promenade. They're all socially distanced, they're not breaking any rules, they're not wearing any masks, they're just enjoying life. And so there's this other thing of connecting back to nature and connecting back to a common, completely free, pretty much thing to do, walk around. It's people laughing at seagulls and um, laughing at squirrels. Yeah. And looking um, down I'd... at tiny flowers and it's absolutely beautiful. So as much as it's a difficult and awkward thing, you know, you're on the river tone, Simon, you're on the River Avon, John. You're on the River Tees. I'm on the River Mersey. We, we're lucky to have this water near us. And that, that seems to have really attracted a lot of attention. A lot of people are going to the river or going to the trees. Yeah, I guess that's the main thing, isn't it? It's like um, I was talking to my friend um, Andy Falconer uh, yesterday about, you know, seeing situations in terms of asset or liability and looking at things and... Uh, it's like, well, I think to come out of this is the idea that a lot of us don't want to go back to the old normal because the old normal's not sustainable. And perhaps this is highlighting aspects of our society and as a global society that we need to look at in order to ensure the survival of humanity and civilization as we know it. And, um, you know, uh, Without this, we we I think we were just going to kind of plod along to the end and and, and wipe ourselves out rather a bit. Um, and uh, it's opened up discussions of things like universal basic income. You know, the idea of knowing what essential jobs are, what what jobs are of value, who the people who actually really keep society going, who they are, and realizing that so many jobs just don't need to be done. And they're being done as, you know, like Buckminster Fuller talks about um, real wealth being planetary resources plus human intellect. And if you're paying people to go to factories to produce plastic flowers and to package those flowers and to distribute those flowers and to sell, market those flowers, you know, all of those jobs are, are really just like destroying 
people and the planet at the same time. I mean, he calculated back in 1950, in terms of real wealth, um, it would it would pay the planet handsomely to, to pay people $40,000 a year just to stay at home and stop consuming petrol, stop going to their pointless jobs, go out and find out what they might want to do, you know, what part they might play in society. Just go and see, what, like this observing thing, just go out and see what needs to be done and just crack on with that, you know. So, so thank, yeah, thanks. Thanks. That's, I mean, that's that's taken us to a really, I think, a really good place to just ask you both, you know, what what are your personal and creative hopes for the next three months? You know, what are you what are you hoping for in the next in the next three months? Um, well, interestingly enough, um, I'm part of an annual event that I'm just going to be really upset if Nina's not heard of because that's a real failing on our part and it, it's called Toxteth Day of the Dead. Oh yeah. Um, so remember the KLF, um, they, they, they were pop stars, they were the biggest pops, they burnt a million quid and uh, they promised to go away for 23 years after doing that because apparently they nor anybody else could figure out why they'd, why they'd done that and some people were quite, quite upset about it. And they, their 23 years ended uh, four years ago. So we had an event called Welcome to the Dark Ages in Liverpool, 400 of us in the street. Um, we just, uh, the, the, Bill and Jimmy ripped up their book and gave us a page each and formed us into chapters. And then we went off and created art, films, music, poetry, um, based on these chapters and then turned them into individual art pieces. And then, um, uh, so I didn't even know that like they've, they've, like they've become undertakers. I, I thought I was taking part in a kind of joke ritual, um, which was at the Flory in Liverpool, um, who I know do a lot of amazing work um, in, in Liverpool. And uh, so 400 of us sort of dressed in like, we had bishops who were basically guys with ice cream cones in their heads. We had uh, all our banners, 400 of us walked through the streets of Liverpool at rush hour in the city centre, dragging an old ice cream van behind us and parading and um, with no permission at all whatsoever. And, you know, we must have really upset a lot of people just trying to get home from their, from their jobs on that day. Um, but it was something, and, and then when we got there, there was like a massive pyre and we burnt these coffins and it turned out that um, Bill and Jimmy are now um, undertakers and they were selling us our death bricks out the back of their clapped out ice cream van. And I kind of thought it was all a joke. And then, it turns out that it's actually, you know, quite serious. Um, Jimmy uh, caught, he lost his brother um, a few years ago. Uh, opinion a bit divided between whether it was suicide or, or murder. And um, so he, he, he arranged a funeral and uh, there's a company called the Green Funeral Company based um, down in Dorset and they did the funeral and Jimmy was so moved by it that he thought this is this is amazing and I want to do this and so their idea is when you die you send them 23 grams of your ashes and it's fired into a brick and these bricks there's going to be 36,000 of them all in total I'm going to build a modern day pyramid um, that is a monument to, to, to dead people and it's being built in Toxturf um, and so for the last three years, we've had an event called uh, um, Toxic Day of the Dead, uh, where we had like, we went to the actual film where Yossa 
um, was filmed originally in Boys for the Black stuff. We had a guy dressed up as Yossa in that house, sort of doing a kind of street performance. Um, we had uh, people at all the creative centres around Toxus, like some had baked cakes, some put on performances, and we all paraded around. And it's a brilliant community event that also incorporates an old um, uh, tradition called beating the bounds, where you basically walk the perimeter of your territory. And we had some of the amazing people who fought so hard to save their terraced houses in Toxteth um, performing for us. So basically that's supposed to be Monday and, um, and we can't do it. And so that's been a massive blow. It's the first time I've ever committed to anything to say, I'm gonna do this every single year of my life. I'm gonna be there doing this. Um, so I'm not this year, um, but uh, I'm kind of putting on um, my uh, my club called the Red Room as a um, as a, a way of us to gather via Zoom. You know, it's going to be miserable, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, so that's going to be an, a night of tales of um, love, sex, and death. So I didn't want to just do the death bit. It might, um, you know, that's for talk stuff. And I'm just what I'm doing is I'm just doing interviews via Zoom, the whole of Teesside seems to be in planning and plotting stages, uh, thinking about when we're gonna get out. As you say, outdoors, it's like, I think when this, once the spring comes, gotta rethink performance spaces, venues, like let's just get, I've got a wheelable PA, it's got six hours charge. Let's just get out there, turn, start performing for people. Every open public space I think now is, is where we perform. Um, and yeah, and just a way of get, just like really getting people at Teesside to, uh, engage in the arts for themselves and find their own voices and to put on their own you know we've got this great scheme where people are um reclaiming disused spaces like uh, their own alleyways that are you know full of rotting sofas and needles and just transforming them and turning it into a space where the whole community is proud of it and therefore protects it and maintains it and you know ways of linking them up performing for them getting them to perform for themselves and and like having a like community festival that celebrates all this reclaimed land that we've managed to bring back uh, to the communities and put in their possession once again. That feels like a, that that sense that vision of kind of let's let's take over lots of outdoor space and turn them into creative spaces is so exciting and so great to think about. You know, next spring when they let the cows out of the barn, we can really go to town. You know, uh, Nina, what about what about you? What are you what are you feeling and hoping for in the next few months? Well, first off, I must just say, Lisa, it was me that spoke for Yossa. That, that was me. And uh, we made him a blue plaque um, years ago when we first started our campaign to save the houses. We said, um, here lived Yossa Hughes, family man. And um, so we, so Tommy Calderbank and, and Jimmy and, and Bill Drummond, their they're mates, you know, that you came down our street and... Um, because our street was empty at the time because the houses had been tinned up for demolition, that was the most people that had been in our street for about 14 years. It was an, it was an, amazing, um, an amazing evening. So I probably met you at a party at our Tom's, you know. That, that was hugely moving. I just found like that amount of people walking calmly, quietly down the street of a city centre at night had a really powerful feel to it. And, no, and, and, you know, and us learning the tale of what you had achieved there. Um, or nearly, they're still not mended. <laughs> but um, the, so yeah, the, I'll go and 
I'll go and gift something on Yossa's doorstep. What I said about Yossa as a character was that the lack of dignity that was um, perceived about him was not his. It was the lack of dignity of the system that produced a situation where people went hungry and didn't have earnings, didn't have didn't have uh, was any resources to live with, and that he was um, a hero. Yossa was a hero for carrying on. Uh, so my um, thing at the moment is um, a few of us that um, grow food. So I'm, I'm from a free food growing area um, and I know basically how little of our food is grown here in this country. And I know that um, much of the food that was gonna be planted by workers that would have been um, EU workers, didn't go in, didn't get harvested, won't be appearing on the table. The ease of movement of goods when Brexit happens um, may be radically different to anything that's so far been described. So there are a number of emergency food growing experiments going on and we're we have tiny little bit of um, tiny, tiny little bit of money to try and extend winter growing, and um, to think about um, what you grow to keep people uh, healthy in the light that they might not be able to access the fresh veg that they're used to. So very particular uh, plants that we might be able to distribute on a street by street. Uh, basis that are very high vitamin C or very high nutrient of other kind and trying to um, spread order and spread seed uh, across the city because the cities are going to be very vulnerable and that's been known I've, I've read a government white paper in 1991 about food security in cities um, that's been known bef before the implications of climate and Brexit so that that's taken up um, quite a lot of thinking at the moment because the uh, the stuff we might need say to build polytunnels with we might not easily be able to buy in January because everything's got to come into the country so that that's what um, so it's the original creation that one is just um, working with the existing creation of how seeds work I should go and plant some seeds outside Joss's house, shouldn't I? That's what I'll do. I'll drop a bit of a mustard green seed in the crack there for someone to eat. That's a really great little resolution to that bit of the conversation. That's lovely, Nina. And actually sort of how interesting that both of you are sort of moving towards things that are to do with those kinds of ecological awarenesses at the moment in various kinds of different ways. It feels like maybe that's one of the things that's, that's, that's really come up in this time for us. It's, it's really forced us to, to focus on those things. Uh, um, so I think that probably brings us more or less to the end of where we need to get to. There's a lot of content in there for us to work with. And thank you, so, both of you so much, Lisa Lovebucket and Nina Edge for uh, being part of State of the Nation today. And I'm just going to hand over to Simon Poulton, my co-host for the shipping forecast. So today's forecast for the British Isles. It's question time for Pretty Patel 
in Thames, Dover White. Nagger breakfast with Hancock in southeast Iceland, Faroes Bailey. It's Good News Megan in Malin Hebrides, leading to NHS pay freeze for nurses across all areas. Hashtag clap for our carers. That was today's forecast for the British Isles. You have been listening to The Parallel State.